Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for attending today's event on the Electoral College. My name is Kevin Navratil, and I am Associate Professor of Political Science at Moraine Valley, and I'm also the Democracy Commitment Coordinator. One of the responsibilities of the Democracy Commitment Coordinator is to try to improve civic literacy on campus and in our community. And in this election year with um, the presidential election coming up, um, the final day to vote in just a couple weeks, um, I thought it would be really important to um, examine this institution that we use to elect the president um, that's called the Electoral College, as there's a lot of misunderstandings and confusion. It's a complex system, and um, I thought it would be an important topic to cover for today. So um, this is a virtual um, discussion, and I plan on covering about 30 minutes of topics. I plan on covering how um, the Electoral College works, why we have it, some benefits of the system, and um, I provide, uh, plan on providing a critical look of some of the flaws with this system. Um, how it how it violates democratic values, how it's unfair, and then I would like to provide some solutions or maybe ideas of improving the system. So that's my, my schedule, schedule today. today. I think any one of these topics could um, be discussed for hours, uh, and obviously we don't have that time. But uh, I did want to crowdsource this event, and um, I look forward to any feedback that you have. So. Um, after around 30 minutes, um, I will uh, uh, respond to any questions that you may have. So please uh, feel free to provide any feedback with comments, questions that you may have on any of these topics via the chat function. So in about 30 minutes, I will be checking those questions and comments and try to get through as many of those as I possibly can. So uh, again, thank you for being here and um, look forward to any of the feedback that you may have. So what I'm going to do is stop my video just for now, and I'll bring it back at the um, end when we go through the questions and comments, just so it's not quite as busy on my screen. Um, so the first thing I'd like to talk about with the um, Electoral College is really just how it works. I know that many of us are coming at this from different places. Some of us have more of an understanding of how it works than others, but I do think it's important to talk about how this works. So as I'm sure you may have heard, we do not have a nationwide popular vote for president. So sometimes you see, um, of the polls that may show one candidate or ahead or behind nationally. And those are helpful, but that's not the way we elect our president. It does not matter which candidate gets the most votes nationwide on election day. A better way of thinking about it is that really each state has its own election and on top of that, we have the District of Columbia that also has a separate election. So essentially, we have 51 separate elections. 
Now, as you may see here, I put technically we have 56. I'm going to spend more time on that in a moment, but just for now, two states, Maine and Nebraska, award their congress uh, award their electoral college votes by congressional districts. Um, so those are essentially separate elections as well. And I find it helpful to look at a map like this one. And this map is very busy. Uh, so let me try to explain what's going on here. The reason I selected this map is I want you for now just to focus on the numbers. And each state has a number associated with it. And that number is equivalent to its representation in Congress. So each state is awarded the number of electoral college votes equal to its representation in Congress. Every state has two senators. And at a minimum, every state has one House of Representative. So at a bare minimum, states have three electoral college votes. Even our least populous state, Wyoming, with around 600,000 people, has three electoral college votes. And then, of course, you can see states like Illinois and others have more. And that is because they have more House of Representatives. Um, so the other thing to keep in mind with the Electoral College is that really it's a race. Um, we have 538 total Electoral College votes. Um, when you add up all of the um, House of Representatives and Senators, it adds up to 535. And then when you include DC, we get to 538. So this particular website is called 270 to win because that's what a majority of the Electoral College is. So a presidential candidate in their campaign is really trying to compete for a coalition of states that will add up to this magic number of 270 to win the Electoral College. I would be happy to get more into um, the shading of colors of this later and kind of prognosticate about who may win or lose the Electoral College. But for now, just know that these state, these colors, the darkest shade of blue, are considered the safest, most likely to vote Democrat states. And these darker shades of red are states that are more safely Republican, um, most likely to go for Donald Trump. And then the, the lighter shades of blue are leaning towards Democrat, the lighter shades of of uh, essentially pink are leaning towards Republican. And then these um, beige areas are considered battleground toss-ups. It's not exactly clear. Some polling data um, shows that the, the, the race is um, undecided between these two um, major candidates, Donald Trump and, and Joe Biden. So, that's the first step of how this works. You need 270 electoral college votes, um, which is a majority of the 538. Another key aspect of the electoral college, and this is probably one of the ones that's most misunderstood, is that electors are the people who actually vote for president. Uh, when we vote, we are actually voting for a slate of electors who will then be the people who actually vote for president in the Electoral College. 
electors are chosen by candidates or state parties. And the candidate that wins the popular vote of a particular state would then send their electors to the respective state house in that state. So for example, if Joe Biden wins the most votes in Illinois, Joe Biden's Democratic electors will go to Springfield, Illinois on the first Monday after the second Wednesday in December. So in 2020, this is going to be December 14th, which happens to be nearly six weeks after the uh, November 3rd election day. Um, another key aspect of the Electoral College that I think um, is, is really key for people to understand it and is, is misunderstood by some. The way that the Electoral College votes are allotted or distributed, allocated, depending upon how you want to describe it. 48 states plus Washington, D.C. have a winner-take-all system. So in a state like Illinois that awards winner-take-all, if you win by one single electoral, I'm sorry, if you win by one single vote, you get all 20 of our electoral college votes. Or if you win by a million votes, you get all electoral college votes. There's really no points for second place. There's no, there's no, um, um, you know, uh, style points, if you will, for, for running a close election. So the winner take all has, has significant consequences that we'll get to later. There are two states, Maine and Nebraska, that essentially break their election down by congressional district. This is a map of Nebraska, and um, Nebraska has five electoral college states. They have two electoral college votes for the Senate seats, and then they have three House of Representative districts. And the way that Nebraska and Maine treat their elections is basically um, two electoral college votes are rewarded for whoever wins the most votes in the entire state. And then they treat these three congressional districts that are shaded in different colors as separate elections. So, for example, in 2008, and coincidentally, the way it looks on the current polling, the way it may work in 2020, is a Republican um, is, is likely to win the state overall. A Republican, Donald Trump, is likely to win the third district, is likely to win the first district. But uh, it's possible that Joe Biden pulls a repeat of 2008 and wins the second congressional district that is essentially just two counties, really the Omaha um, area and some of its surrounding suburbs. So in that case, what would happen is um, Joe Biden would win one electoral college vote and Donald Trump would win four electoral college votes. That's only happened once in the history uh, of, of Nebraska using this congressional district plan, which they started in 1996. It only happened in 2008. And Maine, the other state that uses this, um, has only split their electoral college votes once, and that was in 2016, where Donald Trump won one of the congressional districts and um, Joe Biden won the state of Maine plus the other congressional districts. So it was a, a three to uh, one split. So that's the basics of how the Electoral College works. Um, 
what I'd like to do now is is cover a little bit about why we have it or arguments of, of kind of justifying the Electoral College. Um, I would love to spend a lot of time um, getting at the history of this, but I do think just in, in short, we need to understand that this was a compromise feature of the Constitution. It was something that the framers could agree upon. They knew what they didn't want. Um, they didn't want um, a, a, a popular vote. They didn't want direct democracy. Um, there was concerns about mob rule. They didn't want Congress to, to, to select the, the president. They wanted separation of powers. Um, they, they didn't want a president to just kind of win over one section of the United States. They wanted a statesman who would put together a coalition of states. Uh, so they, they created this hybrid system that would give representation in the Electoral College equal to the representation in Congress to ensure kind of um, a, a more uh, representative president. The other thing to keep in mind is that they initially, and this is really key, the original Electoral College functioned by having the members of the Electoral College be the voters independently for president. So there wasn't this kind of two-step system that we have now where the average citizen like us votes and then based on our vote, the Electoral College member votes. Um, this was created because uh, for a few different reasons. Um, the context of 1787 is that most people are illiterate. Um, there's no mass media. Um, an average citizen in Georgia is going to be very unlikely to to uh, be familiar with a candidate in New Hampshire. Um, so you, you have to think of that context. And so the framers wanted kind of uh, a more politically astute um, body, if you will, of, of electors to be the, the ones who kind of might be the best and brightest to be selecting um, the presidential candidates. So um, there was there was a lot of disagreement about this process. I think it was one of the last um, compromises they had to settle upon. I don't think many people loved. I don't think many of the framers loved this um, final solution that they had, but it was something that they could agree upon and um, could appease kind of the competing interests of the slaveholding South and some of the Northern states. Um, as I just mentioned, the electors have evolved to being um, basically free agents, deciding being able to pick presidential candidates on their own. And now, of course, um, electors are supposed to vote based on the way the citizens vote in the respective states. Um, I, I, will, I will get into more of that um, later on. Um, but essentially, as I mentioned earlier, if 60% of the voters in Illinois select Biden, then Biden's 20 electors should cast their ballot for, for Joe Biden um, in the following month in mid-December uh, in Springfield, Illinois. So one of the benefits of the Electoral College is the idea that it's created kind of a stable uh, two-party system. Um, it's led to peaceful transitions of powers. Um, these two political parties are, are likely to be what we call broad tent, big tent parties, because 
because you don't get any points for second place, because you don't get any uh, electoral college votes for coming up, um, you know, let's say in a state, um, one candidate gets 40% of the vote, um, an, another candidate gets 35% of the vote, and another candidate gets 25% of the vote. You don't get anything for losing by 5%. Only the, the candidate um, who gets 40% of the vote because of that winner take all system, they're gonna get all of the electoral college votes. So it creates an incentive for third parties to coalesce with one of the two major parties to have the best likelihood of winning the electoral college votes for a given state and being the most competitive nationwide. So, it, you know, scholars have argued that that keeps kind of radical fringe parties from being competitive. Uh, you can decide on your own whether you you uh, buy into that, whether that's a, a, a strong argument in favor of the Electoral College. Um, another argument is that, you know, the presidential candidates and their campaigns are going to have to compete in multiple regions of the United States to put together a coalition to get the 270 electoral college votes. So this is going to prevent any one particular region from, from dominating. Um, another way of looking at this is what many people would argue is that, um, as one example, in 2012, President Obama won re-election um, and the popular vote margin that he won was essentially gained by the gap between him and Mitt Romney in four cities, Chicago, LA, Philadelphia, and New York. So often um, proponents of the Electoral College will say, you know, we don't want um, candidates to just campaign in the major cities. We want to make sure that this is a system that gives weight to all states, including small states in rural areas of the country. And so that's a benefit of the Electoral College. The other thing you have to keep in mind is that the compromise of the Constitutional Convention had a key aspect of federalism being a, 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 a source of contention. How much power do states have versus the national government? We were states before we were the United States. These small states wanted to make sure they retained some power and sovereignty to join the union. And so one of the key powers that are delegated to states is that states you know, set the time, place, and manner of their elections. And so these states are, um, these elections are a state run. And so um, one of the potential concerns is if you were to move to a popular vote that in a scenario of a really tight election, and I'm thinking for those of you who are around or know your history, in 2000, there was a really tight race um, that ultimately determined the Electoral College winner in Florida. And when voting stopped, um, I believe George W. Bush won the state of Florida by 537 votes out of over 6 million ballots that were cast. So um, that recount took several weeks. Um, that's a lot of votes to count. But imagine if you had to do a nationwide popular vote recount out of, I think in 2020, there's some estimates that we might have around 150 million votes. Um, that would be very time, uh, take a lot of time, a lot of cost to do a nationwide recount. So arguments against the Electoral College. Um, I think 
this is, you know, just to put my own uh, perspective out there, this is kind of where I'm at. Um, I'm going to, I personally believe there's a lot of flaws with the Electoral College. Um, and I think um, it's, it's unfair and undemocratic in a lot of different ways. But one of the first things I want to um, point out is that even the framers, I really think one of the misconceptions is people think the framers somehow were these um, all-knowing um, people who created this perfect institution to select the president. And that's not even what they thought. This was one of the last things they decided upon. It was, um, according to James Madison, you know, they were tired. It was, it was hot in Philadelphia that summer. They had the windows closed. Um, they were frustrated. They had a lot of other issues that they had to agree upon. And this was kind of one of the last uh, disagreements that they needed to finalize so that they could put this to ratification. So if you, you I, I guess I'm just pointing out that we shouldn't think of this as some perfect institution that um, the, the framers considered flawless at the time. And um, this was a statement from uh, uh, a journalist from the New York Times who's actually written a lot of excellent articles on the Electoral College. I highly recommend that um, you look in. He actually wrote a book on the Electoral College as well that I'll reference at the end. But this is an old institution put together by, at the last minute by people who had never elected a president before, built for a country where the vast majority of the people were denied the right to vote. Um, and so I'll get I'll get to more of that in a little bit later. But my key critiques of the Electoral College is that really it's it's incompatible with some of our basic values. Um, it contradicts and compromises some of our key values. And one of the key values is this idea that has been enshrined in law that one person, one vote, that my vote should be equal to your vote. Um, and so one of the ways that that's violated, uh, bear with me here, I'm gonna take you to a site uh, that as you can see, it's, it's a Wikipedia site, but I'm just using this for simplicity and I want to point out a few things here. Um, first of all, this is basically ranking our states based on their population. And uh, this one is approximated and this is based on the 2000 uh 10 census and what i want you to pay attention to here is that they are listing the number of house of representatives what i wish they would have done is added the two um senate electoral college vote that the state gets as well so basically for this column here you would want to add two to every number that you see so for places like illinois it would be 20 for california it'd be 55. But the benefit of this website is what they have done for us here is they have done the math. They've taken the 55 electoral college votes, divided it by the state population. And this number here shows that essentially for every one electoral college vote that Californians receive, it represents 718,000 people. And so for Texas, the highest uh, number of people per electoral college votes, it's 763,000. Now, when I organized this by um, 
number of electoral college votes per person, you'll see that Wyoming, for every electoral college vote that they have, it represents 192,000 uh, votes. So the point here that I would like to raise is that these most populous states, like Texas, Florida, California, and so forth, essentially um, get like one third and one fourth of the voting power per person than some of the least populous states of your Vermonts and Wyoming. So that's a major flaw in my opinion. Um, another aspect of one person, one vote is the Electoral College represents states plus DC. So for all of the US citizens, which there's about 4 million who live in um, Puerto Rico, Guam, uh, Northern Marianas and the US Virgin Islands, they get no vote at all for US president. Um, another contradiction in my opinion is that it violates the idea of majority rule. Now keep in mind the electoral college one of its ways that it functions is that you need to win a majority of the electoral college votes to win. So clearly the framers, although they created a republic and favored indirect democracy over direct democracy, they still valued the idea of majority rule. However, in five cases, um, in five separate elections, we have had the candidate who receives the most votes not become president. And many of us are familiar with this because of the 2016 election or the 2000 election, but it's happened three other times. And keep in mind, we've only had 58 presidential elections. So, um, you know, that's around 8% of all of our presidential elections where the person with the most votes has actually not become president. We've only had 45 presidents. So that's about 11%. So five out of, of our 45 presidents have essentially become president by not winning the popular vote at least once. So that's a major flaw. Um, and collectively, I think that the concern that I have with these trends is that it creates a problem of le legitimacy that um, when you don't win the most votes, there's a concern that people are going to view this institution, the presidency, as Ill illegitimate. And I just wanted to point to this quote from a Republican for, from a neighboring state of Indiana. And this is back in 1968. And he's, and he's basically saying, have a president who loses a popular vote could erode public confidence in the people of this country, of their president, and of their government. Another major flaw, in my opinion, and perhaps it's hard to rank order these, but in my opinion, this is one of the bigger flaws, is that because of the winner-take-all system, because you win all of the electoral college votes in 48 states based on winner-take-all, it means many states are just ignored. And so, if you look at this particular map, it's showing, and this is uh, from the electoralvotemap.com, uh, and you can go to a lot of different websites that's going to uh, generate public opinion polls to kind of show which states are up for grabs. But essentially, there's really only a handful, I think I'll, I'll actually come up with a better example of 
how few states really matter. And this is taking us back to 2016. So this is basically saying that 94% of all of the 2016 campaign events between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump occurred in 12 states. So essentially 12 states received 94% of the attention. And we're talking too, if you're thinking about um, campaign commercials and so forth, but ultimately it's like two thirds of all of the attention were between Ohio, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, and Florida. And you take it some, you know, uh, some of the really populous states, whether it be New York, um, California, Texas, and Illinois were essentially ignored. The other thing to keep in mind for those people who are in favor of the Electoral College because it protects the small states, you know, Wyoming, South Dakota, North Dakota, uh, Montana, Idaho, the list goes on and on, they were ignored too. So one of the biggest concerns that I have is how much attention is showered upon the battleground slash swing states, states that we don't know exactly which party is going to win. So the candidates really spend all of their time, money and resources in those states. And, you know, I, you can look at just to some of the recent presidential debates, thinking of the vice presidential debate um, with Kamala Harris and Mike Pence, where, you know, fracking was mentioned about 10 times. Um, which is a key issue in states like Pennsylvania, where I want to say maybe 40, 50,000 people um, perhaps have their job in, in fracking. Um, but, you know, wildfires that are going raging on the West Coast was, was only brought up by the moderator. And so the concern here is that the issues that are, are focused on do, do not really match up well with national issues, um, issues that matter in states that are really not as competitive in the Electoral College. So it really distorts um, the agenda for what the candidates uh, focus on. And this argument here for number four, um, a fourth critique of the Electoral College is that it's basically critiquing one of the alleged benefits of the Electoral College. One of the benefits of the Electoral College is that it's supposed to prevent regionalism. Um, and that is basically that the candidates are not going to just um, win over one part of this, the, the country. And, and I understand that this screen is probably a little small for you um, to see on your end. But basically what I'm trying to point out is notice you know, just what it's uh, from from 1988 to 2016, we see a lot of um, similarities as far as which states vote Republican, which is shaded for red, and which states vote blue for Democrat. Typically, your coastal areas, uh, the Northeast and far West tend to be blue, um, and your Midwestern states and Southern states tend to be red. So, um, if one of the benefits is that it's um, not going to prevent regional or that it's going to prevent regionalism, it doesn't seem to be very, uh, doing a very good job of that. Um, I think another major critique of this system is that it doesn't even it it doesn't work the way it was designed. Um, I don't think the framers of the Constitution would recognize this system as it currently exists. 
it currently, yeah, this is a quote um, from Alexander Hamilton about how he intended a small number of people who would be selected by their fellow citizens, who would be most likely to possess the information and discernment requisite to such complicated investigations. The electors, he assured us, would be men most capable of analyzing the qualities adapted to the station and acting under circumstances favorable to deliberation and to a judicious combination of all of the reasons and inducements which were proper to govern their choice. And again, that's not what happens anymore. We do not have electors acting as these trustees who are voting based on their um, conscience and their best information. Instead, we have, um, they're basically rubber stamps that vote based on the way the citizens of their respective states have voted. Um, I could be, I'd be happy to talk more about that. Um, but, I, I, you know, historically, I want to point out that their system was broken nearly from the start. Um, you know, they initially had um, to update this in, in the, with the 12th Amendment in 1804 because the original version of the Electoral College had um, Electoral College members vote for president and uh, vice president, and it led to a tie um, with uh, two people of the same party, Aaron Burr and Thomas Jefferson. And so the House of Representatives had to decide the election that was controlled by the opposing political party, um, which was essentially led by Alexander Hamilton. So they selected Thomas Jefferson as president. Um, so just so you know, the, the Electoral College didn't even work as it was designed for more than two elections uh, before it needed a major update. When I say unique, that's kind of uh, in quotation marks. I'm I'm trying to be nice. I would I, I'd have a lot of other adjectives to describe this, but one of the things I just want you to point out is that nobody else has borrowed this. Even in countries where the United States has has had a heavy hand in helping reshape their government, we have not said, you know, what a great way to elect your executive is is the the electoral college. We don't use this at the state level to elect our governors, the executives at the state level. So it's it's very unique. Um, and then I would be happy to talk more about this too, but I think we're, as I mentioned with that example with Alexander Hamilton selecting, or I'm sorry, with the, the close election in, in 1804 with Aaron Burr, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, where the House of Representatives has had to decide that. That's not the only time the House of Representatives has had to decide it. In fact, there's a lot of scholars who pointed out that the original Electoral College was almost designed to winnow the candidates and then have the House of Representatives decide amongst the top three candidates. Um, and so if no candidate gets a majority or if there's a tie, then it's turned to the House of Representatives. And, and in that case, every state gets one vote. That's right, California with 40 million people gets one vote for president, as does Wyoming with 600,000 people. So in that scenario, whichever political party happened to have a majority of states, now not number of House of Representatives in the Electoral College, but a majority of states would be the, the party uh, selecting the president. So many people say, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Um, 
in so many quotes I could pick from, but I'll just pick one from our current president, Donald Trump, who tweeted after the 2012 election that the Electoral College is a disaster for democracy. And then one that I think really hits home for me, I'd love to talk more about this. In fact, I will in just a moment on ways of reforming it. Um, I'm going to finish up in just another couple minutes. I see him a little bit over my allotted time. Um, give me about five more minutes here. Um, in 1968, we had a, a really weird election that I'd be happy to talk more about, but um, George Wallace, a Dixiecrat, a segregationist, had come close to getting enough electoral college votes to throw the uh, race between Hubert Humphrey and, and Richard Nixon into the House of Representatives. And because of that, there was really bipartisan concern that this system was no longer working. And so there was a presidential commission, I'm sorry, there was a commission of the American Bar Association that erected, uh, recommended a direct popular vote for the president, basically saying that this system is archaic, undemocratic, complex, ambiguous, indirect, and dangerous. So that brings me to what can we do next? And something that we have, um, I think the best solution is to amend the Constitution. Now, it's also the most difficult. We have tried this over 700 times, and I have told my students in class that essentially the system is bulletproof because amending the Constitution is really hard. However, um, I want to point out that we were so close to doing this. After that 1966 election, and, I, and I've got the quote here from Birch Bayer, Republican, and I just want to say it because I think it's really important. The Electoral College is no longer compatible with the values of American democracy. If it ever had been, the founders who created it excluded everyone other than landowning white men from voting. But virtually every development in the last two centuries since, giving the vote to African Americans and women, switch into a popular elections of senators, the establishment of one person, one vote principle, just to name a few, had moved the country in the opposite direction. Adopting a direct vote for president was the logical, realistic, and proper continuation of this nation's tradition and history, a tradition of continuous expansion of the franchise of equality and voting. And the reason I wanted to focus on this is that in 1968, um, it's, I'm sorry, 1969, the, this proposal to amend the, the Constitution passed by a bipartisan supermajority in the House of Representatives, 338 to 70. That's 82% vote of House of Representatives who voted in favor of this. It was supported by President Richard Nixon in most state legislatures. However, it died in the Senate due to the filibuster led by Southern segregationists, Southern segregationists, including and led by Strom Thurmond. So my point is, is that at that point too, 80% of Americans supported um, abolishing the Electoral College. So um, hopefully that's something that we could do again. Other ways of making the system more fair in lieu of amending the Constitution would be to increase the House of uh, the size of the House of Representatives. The House of Representatives had one representative per 6,000 people in 1789. In 1910, 
uh, where this is the time period about 100 years ago where we capped the House of Representatives at 435. Every one House of Representative represented about 200,000, whereas today it's one House of Representative for every 700,000 people. So um, if, we, if we had the same ratio as we did 100 years, years ago, we would have over 500, uh, I'm sorry, we'd have over 5,000 House of Representatives. I wouldn't advocate necessarily that many, but one of the potential um, solutions is what's called the Wyoming, the Wyoming rule. Basically taking the smallest state, which is Wyoming, around 600,000 people, and using that as the unit of measurement to use for apportionment for the House of Representatives. Um, off the top of my head, that would add about 115, at least based on the 2010 census data, 115 House of Representatives, including five for the state of Illinois. Um, so that's one potential solution. Others have argued, you know, adding statehood, at least for Puerto Rico, um, potentially DC. And again, we have other American territories where US citizens um, do not have the right to vote for president. Um, and then another way um, is that we have to keep in mind that states have the power to determine how their electoral college votes are allocated. And two states have already uh, have the congressional district plan that I showed you earlier with Maine and Nebraska. This is really what James Madison and other framers intended the electoral college to look like, that instead of getting a winner-take-all um, formula for a state that you would um, have to compete in every district and that each district would have uh, an electoral college vote for president. Another way of doing this would be a proportional plan. So in states like Illinois, where Republicans, at least in recent history, have gotten around 40% of the vote, they would get 40% of the electoral college votes. So instead of getting zero electoral college votes for Illinois, they would, Republicans would re receive eight um, if Illinois decided to go to a proportional plan. And then perhaps one of the most um, likely scenarios is the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact Plan. This is essentially an end around amending the Constitution. It just requires at the state level, since I previously pointed out states can determine how they allocate the electoral college votes, we currently have 15 states plus the District of Columbia who have agreed to award their electoral college votes based those signees. So Illinois is basically saying if Donald Trump and Republican gets the most votes nationwide, we would agree as a state to give our 20 electoral college votes to Donald Trump, even if Joe Biden, the Democratic Party nominee, wins the most votes in our state of Illinois. Currently, those 15 states in D.C. represent 196 electoral college votes. So several other states um, would need to, so essentially there's 74 votes short of getting that majority necessary for winning the majority of the electoral college votes. So there's a ways to go, um, but that's one potential solution to the electoral college being updated. That's 
Um, really all I have, I think I'll end with my presentation. So, um, wow, I'm 15 minutes over time, but we still have 30 minutes left. And I'm just going to end with this quote from Thomas Jefferson. And he's basically telling us that, um, you know, there's always going to be imperfections with laws. It's better to live with small imperfections, but um, his, his, his broader point is that laws and institution must go hand in hand with the progress of the human mind as that becomes more developed, more enlightened, as new discoveries are made, new truths discovered, manners and opinions change. With the change of circumstances, institutions must advance also to keep pace with the times. We might as well require a man to wear the still the same coat which fitted him as a boy, as civilized society will remain ever under the regimen of the barbarous ancestors. So um, I'm going to stop sharing my, um, my screen and turn on my video. And I'm going to try to go through the chat. Bear with me here um, as I try to find your comments and questions um, to the to the um, electoral college. So the first one is about not being able to hear. Oh my gosh. Okay, in general, how fair is the Electoral College? Does it favor one party over the other? That's a great question. And that the answer to that, I think, has evolved over time. It depends. Um, I think presently, if you look at the last um, several elections, for example, the last seven elections that we've had, so seven times four spans 28 years, which is the lifetime of, of most uh, college students who are potentially listening to this. Democrats have won the popular vote in six of the last seven elections. Um, it's, it's likely that if Donald Trump wins the majority of the Electoral College, that he would lose the popular vote once again, in large part because of um, losing by wide margins in states like New York and, and California. And winning, this is a key part, winning by small margins in some of these battleground states. So in 2016, as you may have heard, um, between the states of Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, Donald Trump won those three states by a combined 77,744 votes. So less than 78,000 votes total um, allowed him to win each of those three states and thus securing a majority in the Electoral College. So presently, I think the Electoral College has a, a, a built-in bias towards Republicans, but that has not always been the case. And looking to the future, it's possible that there'll be uh, more of a built-in Electoral College bias towards Democrats. Um, based on demographic changes. Um, I'm just speculating here, but let's say if some of these states that um, I just referred to continue to trend towards Republicans, um, but some of the states like Texas, Georgia, and Arizona, potentially Florida, um, it's possible that Democrats, because of changing demographics, 
and population growth, uh, especially in some of the big cities uh, like Atlanta and Houston uh, in Miami, that the Democrats would win narrowly in these states and get all of the electoral college votes in these humongous states and make it really hard to have um, um, you know, Republicans to win the electoral college vote. How are the electors chosen? Excellent question and one that I do not have a, a, a quick response to because this varies by state. Um, states do this a little bit differently, but typically the, the best response I can give is that the state political parties determine who their electoral college votes or who their electoral college members are. Constitution basically just tells us they can't be federal office holders. Um, typically, they are um, party insiders, um, people that um, are pretty connected um, to uh, the political parties, um, but they're typically names that you haven't heard of before, um, and they are not federal office holders. And so that's determined by states and the state political parties. Can they be bribed? I'm, I'm, I'm going to say no. Uh, legally, they, they can't be bribed. But there was a lot of concern in 2000 um, with, you know, George W. Bush winning the state by only 537 votes out of, um, you know, 6 million ballots cast. And again, in, in 2016, there was some consternation about how might some of these electoral college members uh, electoral college members vote in some of these really closely divided states, especially since, you know, Donald Trump was kind of a, a, a newer member of the Republican Party and some members of the Republican Party establishment um, could um, urge electors to vote for somebody else. Um, I will point out that in the House of Representatives, and this is where, you know, I wish I was more of a historian, but I want to say the 1824 election, that was um, close um, between John Quincy Adams and um, um, Jackson, um, where it was ultimately, there was four candidates that were pretty competitive, but the House of Representatives decided this. And there was a lot of, uh, uh, I don't wanna call it bribery, but there was a lot of, um, coordination going on in the House of Representatives to make John Quincy Adams the winner. So I think that's a big concern of having the House of Representatives decided as far as vote trading and so forth. Can electoral college votes be contested? Um, I wish I had a way of, of, of asking you to elaborate on that, but I'm going to, here's the way I'm gonna interpret that. Yes, because let's say that, again, Pennsylvania might be a really close state in 2020. I just read recently that um, essentially the Supreme Court voted um, four to four to allow um, the state of Pennsylvania to take extra time to count the mail-in ballots. However, if um, 
Donald Trump and the Republican Party continue to sue during, let's say, somehow Pennsylvania becomes the ultimate uh, decider and, you know, getting a majority of the Electoral College votes. It's possible, and this is off the top of my head, that the state of Pennsylvania's uh, Republican Party controls the state legislature. And it's possible that the state legislature says, you know what, we are going to decide to use our um, electoral college votes. Uh, I think they have 20, something like that, um, to go for uh, Donald Trump. And there is a Democratic governor, but that is something that could be contested. And both campaigns are getting uh, fundraising um, for lawyers because with the expectation that this is going to be a very litigated election. So, um, yes, this could be a very contested electoral college votes could be contested. Does the system always alienate minority voters? I think that it's been proven and I'd be happy to share resources that currently the battleground states that I mentioned, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, um, Michigan, Ohio, are disproportionately white in regards to uh, the, the demographics of the rest of the country. Uh, New Hampshire would be another battleground state that would fit that mold. Um, another way of looking at it, though, and one of the arguments in favor of the Electoral College is that states like Florida that have been, I mentioned the 2000 election where it was decided by 537 votes, small groups of people, Cuban Americans, uh, people of the Jewish faith, Muslims, um, a, a voting bloc that is very small in number could have a really consequential um, power in selecting the president. Some people would point to farmers, you know, that numerically they're less than 1% of the total population, but farmers, whether it's orange growers in Florida or whether it's soybean farmers in Iowa, another battleground state, have uh, a pretty small group of, uh, or a pretty powerful voting bloc. And so when you say minority, I'm just picking as like a minority of a small group of people, not necessarily demographic, uh, racial, ethnic minority. Um, third parties, yes, the system really does do a, a phenomenal job of blocking third parties. Um, and I'm not saying that as a positive thing. Um, I want to say in 1992, Ross Perot got around 18% of the total popular vote. Um, but because he never won a, you know, a plurality, he didn't get the most votes in any one state. Um, he didn't get a single electoral college vote. Um, now, technically, in 1860, the Republican Party was a third party. Um, the Whig Party was was more uh, the, the Whig versus Democrats was really the two party system preceding the 1860 election. So it is possible for a third party to have a complete like realignment. Um, it is possible, but it's very unlikely under this current structure for third parties to be consequential. Now, that being said, if I pointed out um, 
in 2016, I'll just do this off of the front of my head to save time. If you look at the margins of votes, so when uh, Hillary Clinton lost Michigan by 11,000 votes, around 22,000 votes, she lost um, Wisconsin and, and 44,000 votes around, uh, she lost in Pennsylvania. If you look at the number of Green Party votes or Libertarian Party votes in each of those three states, they far exceeded that margin of victory that Trump had in those three states. So third parties aren't necessarily, they're not going to win, but they can determine who does win. Does the advent of TV negate the system? You know, again, I wish we could, um, that's because we are counting pieces of paper. Um, I'm not exactly clear on what uh, you mean on that question? Um, one of the things that I think that the advent of TV has done is really, you know, traditionally political parties had a lot of power of their party leaders kind of picking their candidates um, that they thought would be most competitive, not only for the presidential election, but would help bring out the vote for the lower ballot races. And now we've had kind of presidential candidates um, compete who are more celebrities. Um, you know, Donald Trump is like a legit celebrity from the Celebrity Apprentice, but even people like Hillary Clinton, um, you know, who have been in the national uh, spotlight for four decades and similarly for Joe Biden. And then, you know, arguably in 2008, um, Barack Obama was, um, like a celebrity and the attention and um, popularity um, that he had. Do I think that there's a possibility that the Electoral College would be abolished? I think um, back to the point about, you know, in 1968, 69, we were really close. 80% of Americans supported it. Um, and it was bipartisan. I think we need to have both parties feel that this system is unfair. Um, I think that could happen in a few ways. One is that I mentioned is that some of the demographics change for states like Georgia or Texas to where Republic, the Democrats have more of a bias in electoral college and then the Republicans might start rethinking how fair the system is. Another way that that could happen, you know, if we have a sixth time where the person with the least amount of votes becomes president, um, and one of the ways that that's consequential is I, I pointed out that, you know, Donald Trump lost the popular vote, but he is likely to have now three of the nine Supreme Court members of the Supreme Court. Uh, Democrats have won six of the last seven presidential elections in the popular vote, um, but have only um, been able to nominate three of the nine members of the Electoral College vote, or I'm sorry, three of the nine members of the Supreme Court. So I think at some point, if Americans just feel like, wait a minute, this isn't working. The American people have spoken. Um, one party tends is winning more but, of the vote, but losing um, the office. Um, and if people get fed up and protest and you know, contact elected officials and demand change, that that's entirely possible. Um, so it is possible, I just think, amending the constitution is, is, is probably far off or far off from that, at least right now. 
How do I feel about ranked choice voting? I love it. So that, if you're not familiar, would be a way, and this could happen at the state level. So let's say that, I don't know, my, um, my, my favorite choice um, idealistically is a Green Party member. I would vote for them first, and then I would vote for Democrat Joe Biden second, and Libertarian Party third, and Donald Trump fourth. And basically, um, if nobody receives, if uh, nobody receives a majority, then um, the top two vote getters would go to the second round, and my my top choice um, would be eliminated. The Green Party member would be eliminated, and then my vote would translate down to um, my second choice, who would be Joe Biden. Um, and so that would be a way of making this a little bit more fair. The one thing I would point out for that, like many of these state level changes, is that it could have consequences. So Maine uses that right now. Um, and as battleground states consider making those changes, I think it's a, a important question of equity. Like if Michigan does it, um, then what about the other states? I think it's something that we're going to have to grapple with as a country that we can't just have one or two states make a significant change. Um, like I would just say, like for California, if they were to go to um, the congressional district plan, um, then Republicans would win 20-some electoral college votes easily. Um, similarly for Texas, if they went to a congressional district plan, Democrats would win um, uh, at least a dozen or more uh, electoral college votes. So if only one of those states made that change, it would dramatically alter the calculus of which party would have the advantage in the electoral college. How do we know the Electoral College won't be bought, biased or bought out by a specific party? Well, they have, almost without exception, the members of the Electoral College vote have voted based on how the voters of their respective states have instructed them to. So I keep giving that example of 60% of Illinois residents, voters vote for Joe Biden. Those 20 Electoral College members are supposed to vote for Joe Biden. Now we've had historical examples, including 2016, where we've had what we call faithless electors who vote for somebody who did not get the most votes in their respective states. We've had examples of people voting for the spotted owl, people who voted for Colin Powell um, in the 2016 election, instead of the way that um, the voters of those respective states instructed them to. Does the Electoral College exist, bringing the question whether or not our votes really matter? I absolutely think that's the case. You know, um, I think it's important to vote in all elections. I think it's important to vote in this election if you're in Illinois because we have the amendment to change our constitutional system in Illinois, to change our tax system, to be um, graduated and uh, where higher income earners pay more of a tax instead of the current flat tax system. We have a Senate race, we have competitive House of Representative races, we have some competitive state legislature races. But that being said, it's pretty clear that Illinois is going to vote for Joe Biden. 
And if I'm a Republican or even a Democrat, I had a friend who um, contacted me and said, oh, um, they're challenging my, my mail-in ballot because the signature didn't match and now I have to go get it notarized. Well, Illinois is going to vote for Joe Biden anyway, so what difference does it make? Um, so one of the critiques of this system is that it depresses voter turnout. You know, there's not a much incentives for Democrats in Utah to turn out the vote when they know that all the votes are going to go for Republicans. And similarly, in blue states, it depresses Republican uh, voter turnout. States determine the manner and place of their elections. So that's why the names of the electors do not always appear on the ballot and they won't appear on the ballot in Illinois. People have agreed to change the system before is the question. Why haven't they tried again? Well, we've tried over 700 times. I want to say um, a House of Representative from Hawaii may have been the most recent constitutional amendment. Um, to propose this, I would guess that we're going to see it again after this 2020 election. Um, I think it gets the most attention when it deviates, when the popular vote deviates from the Electoral College vote. Um, but I, I mean, I selected this topic because I'm, I'm trying to, I just want to express my own personal opinion. This system is flawed. It's not working the way it was designed. And I think it's ultimately going to lead to people questioning the legitimacy of the presidency and of their government. One quick thing that I didn't mention so far is that I think the framers were clear that they expected the, the legislative branch to be most powerful. They, they delegated you know, over 20 different powers to, to Congress and talked about Congress first in Article One they expected the legislative branch to be most powerful. After 200 years, after the first 100 years, especially from 1900 on, the presidency and the power of the presidency has expanded significantly and is way more powerful than the legislative branch in, in many ways, especially in regards to foreign policy. And so I think it's even more consequential for us to make sure that we feel good about the way that we the process that we use to elect the presidency. Um, I mentioned earlier about the Supreme Court being another one. Um, you, know, it, you know, Democrats' concern is like, hey, one third of the total federal court system is picked by uh, Donald Trump who lost the popular vote. Um, and, and these are people, especially the three Supreme Court members that he nominated, they are going to to be in the Supreme Court, barring any health issues, for four decades. So your children are going to inherit the Supreme Court members that were selected by somebody who lost the popular vote by over, you know, around three million votes. Does the popular vote have any effect on the presidential election? Well, the popular vote in the respective states certainly does. Um, that's how we determine who gets the electoral college votes in each state. I think, you know, if if Donald Trump or whoever wins the electoral college vote, um, the, the pop, I'm sorry, wins a majority of the electoral college vote, but loses the popular vote by four million, by five million, by six million, 
these are all possibilities, then I think, again, the, the, the legitimacy continues to erode. So I think for that reason, the popular vote certainly does matter. Um, so as long as, um, uh, I guess there's a couple of answers that technically, you know, popular vote is not going to determine who the president is, but from like a public opinion standpoint, I think the citizens may, if for the sixth time in U.S. history, the person with the most votes doesn't win the presidency, I think it could come into, come into play. Um, delegates that we use for the primary system are different than electors, and they are not the same people. Um, how often is it when electors choose not to vote for the candidate they pledge for? It's pretty rare. It's less than 1% of the time. Um, if you email me, my email is navratil, N-A-V-R-A-T-I-L, K-2 at Moraine Valley. Um, I'd be happy to send you some resources of those examples of faithless electors. Um, there was a handful of them in 2016. Um, there's been other examples in U.S. history. It's never determined the outcome of the election. So a faithless elector has never swayed um, one candidate to win the electoral college who shouldn't have based on their faithless um, elector. What in, in my eyes is the most reasonable choice in altering the electoral college without abolishing it? I think at a minimum, it would be that Wyoming rule of increasing the House of Representatives or at least increasing the number of electoral college votes um, based on ex, uh, using Wyoming, the least populous state, as the formula for reallocating how many electoral college votes each state has. When I showed that um, website earlier that indicated that some states like, you know, Vermont and Wyoming have really like 3.5 times more power per citizen than states like Texas or California or Florida, that's just unfair. That clearly violates the idea of one person, one vote. So at a minimum, um, you look up the Wyoming rule. There's a few websites on it. And, and it, it, wouldn't have turned, it wouldn't have changed the outcome of the 2016 election, FYI, um, because, of course, states like Texas and Florida that Donald Trump won fairly easily um, would have had more um, electoral college votes based on the Wyoming rule. But I do think that that's one way of making the electoral college more fair without abolishing it. And, you know, if every state had a congressional district plan, which is really what the framers wanted, people like James Madison, I think that would be more fair. So and then instead of taking all of Illinois for granted, because, you know, overall, the entire state's going to vote for um, Joe Biden, it would it would mean that candidates would want to compete in some of these districts in Illinois that we don't know how they're going to vote. Some of these districts that include parts of the suburbs and into to central Illinois, um, we don't know how they're going to vote. So candidates would be really forced to compete in more parts of the United States. Talking to those voters' concerns, those voters' interests, I think that would be outstanding. So 
Um, the problem with that is, again, you would need uniformity. You would need blue and red states to switch to that plan simultaneously. Otherwise, it would tip the balance of favor from one party to another. Yeah, some people are talking about not voting. I mean, I can't stress this enough. I mean, this don't follow the national polls. You need to look at some state polls. Polls are not perfect, but they do tend to give us a pretty good snapshot in time of what's going on in a particular state. There's a lot of states that are close. Um, I was getting into an argument in a message board with somebody earlier. It's like, uh, oh, North Carolina has got a 2% lead for Joe Biden and it's looking great. No. With the margin of error, that's plus or minus 3%. Um, it's possible that Joe Biden's down by 1%. It's possible that he's up by 5%. Um, many of these states are uh, at this, you know, many of the polls at the state level are showing a really competitive election. So um, it's really important to vote. I've seen, I, I've read a lot of examples of, of people's uh, mail-in ballots getting challenged. You know, people who are waiting in really long lines to vote, um, who sometimes have to leave. You know, this is really important, not just for president, but for all races. Um, it's important, you know, we keep, there's data on whether you vote um, and whether age groups, you know, voter turnout based on age groups. And so, for example, if 18 to 29 year olds continue to have the lowest voter turnout as an age cohort, it's going to be easier for your interests to be neglected. So I think it's really, really important that I'm trying to wear my shirt vote. I, I wholeheartedly um, am passionate about people uh, exercising your right to vote. You know, if you look through history, people fought hard for this. People died for this. And I'm not just talking that people who served in the military, um, you know, it, uh, abroad and fought in wars. I'm talking people who, you know, blacks have not always had the right to vote. Women have not always had the right to vote. 18 to 21 year olds have not always had the right to vote. People worked hard to get um, these, those three groups of people to be able to vote. So don't take it for granted. Yeah, Ireland uses ranked choice voting, and it, it's great. I think that, yeah, these are all, and this is what I'm trying to say. It's like, you know, in the framers' time, you know, the mode of transportation, you know, the mode of transportation, their technology, their society, these were just 13 little, you know, they were, it was a big country at the time, but now we're a continent. Everything is so different. Why would we want the entire, why would we want to keep the way that they selected the president in 1787 for the first presidential election in 1789 to be the same in 2020? Yes, voting is compulsory in Australia. Um, I think that some people in America find that violates their freedom, but um, there are certainly ways that we could make voting a lot easier. It looks like I've gotten through all the questions right at 1045. Um, I appreciate those of you who who uh, came and per, uh, participated in this. Um, if you have any additional questions, I'm going to stick around and I'd be happy to answer them. Um, so thank you for your time and um, I'll, I'll hope to see you again next Tuesday. We will have an event on the 2000. 
in 20 election, looking at um, some of the close races that you will have the opportunity to vote for. Um, that will be at 930 to 1045. All right, thank you.